This is the Politics Lab, a podcast that puts politics under a microscope. On this week's episode, Bill and Phil head north to Wisconsin to ponder the politics of its Supreme Court, discuss the movement among some conservatives to break up with Ronald Reagan, ask why it seems that both Democrats and Republicans are turning away from free trade, and then close by pondering why the last 10 years of American politics has been uniquely stupid. Now, let's go to the lab. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Politics Lab. My name is Bill Muck, and I'm a professor of political science at North Central College, and I'm joined by my colleague and best friend, Dr. Phil Barker, who's a professor of political science at Keene State College. Hey, Phil. Hey, Bill. How are you? I'm doing wonderful. You know, we were we were talking before air. This is an exciting week. We're back to school. There's a lot of world events going on, but bi- the biggest of all the big news is you got a new TV. I did. I did. It's like a, it's a, a, a important moment in, in life. Yeah, I had, had a, you know, it was, I had a fine TV, but it was no, like your seven TV years was miserable. <laughs> it was starting to show some signs of wear and you had been telling me I needed to get a new one. And I knew I did, but I just didn't really fully realize what I was missing out on. So, yeah, I got a, you know, a big OLED TV with surround sound and it, it really is. It's like a whole different experience. Oh. I, I, I'm so happy for you, right? Because this is, you know, as, as we're going into the fall and football season and all the other reasons to watch a TV, you got to be inside more. You know, in the summertime, you don't necessarily need a great TV. But when fall comes and winter hits, oh, it's going to be uh, just it's, it's, it's yeah, like I said, life changing in terms of just a wonderful way to spend some time. I believe in good TVs. I can't, I can't wait for for football. I mean, you're a you're an NFL guy. I'm a college football person, but I, I can't wait. I turned on the we were talking earlier. I turned on the Notre Dame game this weekend, and you know, like going from a, a, a like an older TV just to a nice TV watching football was fine. But then the the Notre Dame game was in 4K, and it's like a whole. It's like I traveled into the future. It's yeah. so great. And like the Colorado game, I think this weekend is on uh, in 4K. So that'll be uh, fun to watch. And you know. It, we, we graduated from CU. We went to grad school in Colorado uh, and graduated like 20, almost 20 years ago at this point. Right, yeah. And it feels like Colorado football has been bad ever since then. And finally, there's like attention to it. So it'll be they're on TV. So it'll be fun to to watch that. But yeah, the difference in like even, you know, even the old shows, like when you're watching whatever, you know, reality TV or you turn on a movie yeah. and the, the, the experience is like you're in the room. It's great. It's <laughs> technology is wonderful, Bill. It is like we we spent a fair amount of time on this podcast talking about AI and the ways in which technology may may challenge us. But that doesn't count for TVs like all the advancements. <laughs> there are totally worthwhile. Um, and you're right. It's becoming a more immersive experience. I keep thinking like, you know, like 4K, they just keep finding ways of getting better. You know, when first when HD came out, you thought there's no way things can get better. And then 4K hits. And I mean, eventually it is going to be this fully immersive experience where I, I just I, I I like being alive to be able to see all of these transitions that are occurring in in terms yeah. of TVs and all the other technologies. I don't I don't think I have ever really understood TV like technology and how it works, but the new ones really like the the, the the other thing is like my, the TV that I got is like thinner than my phone. It's I, I don't I don't understand how that works. I, but uh, you do though, right? Oh, it's it's just magic. It's just magic. That's the only <laughs> way to understand it. How you can have something like that and and just be able to yeah to watch programs and news. And I just, I love it. I'm I'm totally on board. So good for you. Um, yeah. In other news, Donald Trump had his mugshot. You you know I I didn't think that was going to be as big of a deal as it was. But like you hopped on social media and everybody yeah. and their uncle pro and against Donald Trump were like sharing this mugshot. Donald Trump is now making money. You know, he's advertising his mugshot for donations. Selling, this, this selling big, shirts. And, 
Yeah, he's like selling pictures of the mugshot on shirts and stuff with like a never surrender tagline, (laughs) which is like there's an irony to that to someone who's like surrendering to the authorities. But yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was a historic moment, right? A presidential mugshot. And, and apparently they spent, he and his advisor spent a lot of time on like how he should look and he decided he was going to look defiant. And it's just, it's kind of crazy. The stuff that we, that we focus on and and it matters in politics that, that like the look of the mugshot feels like in some ways is more important than the fact that he is being arrested in the first place. Oh, there's something to that. Right. And I, I get it. I get, I get why people get pulled in by it. Uh, but it is, it is bizarre, right. That those things matter and that we spend so much time thinking and, and writing and, and watching TV about it. But I mean, and, and then, you know, like Rudy Giuliani's mugshot, I, I, I'm worried for Rudy. That guy is not in a good place. Um, you know, and his legal troubles and financial troubles all seem to be sort of mounting and yeah, I, uh, him and Mark Meadows, I think those guys are really stressed. Is Rudy at the top of your list of people most likely to flip? Oh, God, yes, yes. I, I would think so, right? But if only for the financial reasons, right? I mean, he yeah. is apparently he's having to sell his apartment in New York for, you know, five, yeah. six million or something just to pay legal fees. He Trump owes him millions, apparently, legal fees, and he's not going to pay <laughs> that. So, I mean, it does feel like the the sort of the drama of the moment may lead uh, Rudy to flip. But who, but who knows? I mean, I think yeah. the sort of the psychology of these of these cats is just a strange, hard to figure out. He's, he is kind of the the most like seemingly the truest believer in some ways yeah. too. Like I feel like some of them know that what they're saying is nonsense and it feels like Rudy kind of believes it at the same time. <laughs> so, I, I think yeah. so. CNN, I know we got to move on, but CNN did a four part series they released recently on Rudy Giuliani and kind of the arc of his his career and his character. And it was really fascinating because it brought you back to when, you know, prior when he was a prosecutor and then his work as a mayor uh, post 9-11. And he's had many ups and downs. Like we sort of remember him fondly for the post 9-11 stuff, which I think he deserves some credit for. But there were, you know, there there have been signs that he is an eccentric character going all the way back. And, and you know, and some of the racism and some of that sort of stuff in the, the conspiracy theories, there, there have been elements to suggest this isn't entirely a surprise. Yeah. Well, before we dive into our first topic, you want to remind everybody how they can stay connected. Yeah, so you can find us on uh, at uh, thepoliticslab.com. Um, so at thepoliticslab.com, you can find all of our old episodes. And on uh, each episode, there's a episode page, and you can click and find relevant readings. So this week, we've got, I think, four articles up, one for each of the topics. But uh, um, the last topic, well, I mean, each of them, um, if you want to read a little bit more. But um, uh, particularly the fourth topic we get to today is kind of a, a longer article. And if you find that interesting, you can find the link. Um, on on our webpage. So you can also find, of course, all of our social media stuff in emails for Bill and I and all of that um, all on the webpage. That sounds good. All right. So we're going to start in Wisconsin. Phil, lead us in. Yeah. So let's start by taking a trip to your home state of Wisconsin, Bill. Uh, state level politics in Wisconsin have been dominated in recent years by the Republican Party, despite the fact that the state is fairly evenly divided politically. Uh, but then in April, Cheeseheads went to the poll. I I, I did some Googling and I I was assured that Cheeseheads is a is a beloved term. Oh, and definitely. I shouldn't feel bad about describing everyone in Wisconsin as a Cheesehead. That's right. It's totally it's better fine. than better than. I- 
than Wisconsinite. Yes, I, I don't. I choose not to wear a cheese head, but I, I it's a it's a term that's a, of endearment. Yes, yes. You do own one though, don't you? Like hand those out at the hospital when you're born, right? <laughs> uh, my if my son had a, a cowboy hat cheese head, uh, but we've never had the actual brick. So. Okay, all right. So anyway, cheese heads in April went to the poll uh, polls and elected a liberal justice to the state Supreme Court. Uh, that act switched control of the court from Republicans to Democrats, and the newly liberal court quickly implemented changes to the role of the chief justice, a position that had been held by a conservative before. Uh, it's worth noting that they sort of made this change using rules that had been put in place by Republicans in the past to unseat a liberal justice who had been in the job. So, so they're not necessarily, they're not changing the rules; they're using rules that had been changed uh, previously. Um, and, and liberals in the state have already begun the process of bringing cases that would allow the court to rule on reproductive rights, redistricting, and other causes important to the Democratic Party. Um, the state Republican Party response uh, is to threaten to impeach the new judge, <laughs> um, arguing that the judge had been outspoken on issues before her election. They're claiming now that she should recuse herself from any topic which she has, quote unquote, prejudged, mm -hmm. which means anything that she commented <laughs> on in the in the election leading up to it. And the fascinating part is, as I was sort of reading through this stuff, is that in Wisconsin, it takes a majority in the House to impeach and a supermajority in the Senate to convict. And the Republican party has both currently. So they could do this if yes. they maintain party loyalty. And even before a conviction, a justice who is impeached isn't allowed to take part in cases. So the Republican party can potentially sideline the new judge without ever actually convicting them, maybe other judges as well. So uh, Bill, this is all exactly what political scientists have in mind when they talk about the idea of loyal opposition and strong democratic institutions, yes. right? Uh, so it, it, it does seem that Wisconsin is, again, a case study in the struggles of American democracy and partisanship and all of this, you know, uh, uh, um, you know, win at all costs approach to politics. So you're from Wisconsin. You've even had run ins with some of the Supreme Court justices yeah. there. So I, I'm going to let you start with your thoughts on what's going on uh, with the Wisconsin Supreme Court in general. And then also look at what that tells us about where we are. Yeah, in some ways, Wisconsin is the perfect microcosm of, of the broader national debate we're having about politics right now. It's just, it is, it is as you said it, like winner take all. And, it, and if you're trying to understand what's happening in Wisconsin, think about what we've seen at the at the federal Supreme Court, right? So you're seeing a very conservative court, and that conservative court is overturning years and years of precedent. Um, what we're expecting to see in Wisconsin is a similar dynamic. So over the last, I don't know, five or ten years, um, Wisconsin has been gerrymandering at the state level, which means that Republicans, who, you know, it's as you noted, it's basically a 50-50 state, evenly divided. But Republicans have gerrymandered the districts, as a number of states have, so that they now have a majority or a supermajority, as we talk about the state Senate, um, and have used that power to institute a whole host of legislative initiatives, uh, undermine uh, workers' rights, take away voter ID laws. Now, some of that has been... Uh, vetoed by the governor, right? So you have similar gridlock to like you thinking about at our national level, which has been a lot of this falls to the Supreme Court. And so the court has historically been, what, for the last 15 years, conservative. And so they have reinforced in a very, very political way. So 
we talk about our current, you know, the federal Supreme Court is political. The state Supreme Court in Wisconsin is even more political, right? So they've been doing this. Um, now, the retirement of that Supreme last latest Supreme Court justice, the conservative, meant that there was going to be an election, and it was a hotly contested election. It did. It's weird to elect judges, but Wisconsin, it was so, so political. I mean, the airwaves, I was actually up in Wisconsin a couple days before the election itself. It was nonstop ads, and you had both of these candidates engaging as if they were politicians yeah. uh, and that's really what it took um so so the the liberal justice ended up winning by a pretty significant margin and so now uh the republicans are looking at the situation saying that this court is going to be aggressive in overturning precedent specifically thinking about the gerrymandering abortion voting right laws like all of these things that conservatives have pushed for years are likely to be flipped over unless they impeach her, right? So this is, you know, and it's just, it really is is sort of bonkers to think about that. I mean, um, you know, elections should have consequences and the idea of impeaching somebody because they made some comments on a case feels like a real stretch there. So I, I mean, I don't know, I've, I've said a lot of things, but it's just, it is, it feels so exactly like we're seeing at the national level but worse like if you i i think it's very likely that they will impeach this supreme court mm. justice who has not ruled on a single case so they mm. will likely impeach her before or try to impeach her before she's even had a judgment and just think about what that says about our our political dynamic that you can't even let somebody of the other side begin their job because their position and their perspective poses such a dramatic ideological challenge. I mean, it's just it's it's really it's really something as an outsider. When you look at the Wisconsin political system, what strikes you about it? Well, I mean, I think you're exactly right. I, I, there's, I think a lot of the stuff we're going to talk about today kind of throws back to what we talked about last week with this yeah. idea of uh, sort of demonizing the other and and, and all of that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, when I look at Wisconsin, I think, again, I'm, I'm an outsider. I don't know Wisconsin all that well. But I, I, as I think about it, I think it is it is the perfect kind of case study or microcosm of American politics. I was just jotting stuff down, you know, before we started rec recording, because I, the way I, I mean, I, you, you know, better than me. And so I could be wrong, but I, I think like the stuff that's playing out in, in America, like I think is, is the urban rural divide, yeah. right? Like yep. it's, it's playing out with sort of Milwaukee versus, you know, the, the sort of cities versus the, the rural, the, you know, the role of race in, in kind yes. of motivating so much stuff in, in Wisconsin, um, Republicans essentially using the rules to hold on to power. Or the idea of like where yeah. where it's it's important for us to to govern uh, and and you know and if we have to sort of stack the deck in our favor we'll do that the Democrats being sort of like the the Dem Democrats being sort of animated by some of the political stuff so you had this look really high turnout and yeah. and, and whatnot the role of like election denialism and all <laughs> yes. of that I mean it it really is it is this really snapshot of American politics which is yeah. not great because I feel like if we were to make a list. Of of, uh, you know, if we took the 50 states and we were to rank them by sort of functioning state government, it feels like, uh, you know, in the past, Wisconsin, it felt like it had a system that worked, but it feels like in the last 10 years or so, Wisconsin has become one of the more dysfunctional state level political entities. And so if that's, you know, representative of where we are as a country, it, it, it doesn't seem to bode well at all. So, so that's, you know, part of it is just yeah. kind of th that aspect and what we can learn from it. Um, the 
the other part is the 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 uh, you know I'm I'm an institutions guy, so the idea of elected judges is just a, a terrible idea. Yes, yes, uh, but yeah. we we can come back to that, I guess. You know, uh, later on, I suppose. But I mean, I guess my question: if if Wisconsin does. Uh, you know, does kind of represent where we are as a country. You say you think that that's likely what will happen is that they will move to impeach them. The question that comes to my mind. So as I look, you know, they, they, the, the Republican majority is, you know, they have a sizable majority, but do they have a, is, is sort of the, the belief in this kind of uh, zero sum game politics, is that like extensive enough that all Republicans will be on board, or is it that you're you're hearing from and seeing sort of the you know the craziest branch, and that there are enough sane Republicans in Wisconsin state politics that even an attempt to do this probably won't move forward. I, what, what's, what are your thoughts on that? I think you're assuming a level of reasonableness in the Republican state party <laughs> in Wisconsin that I don't think is there. Now, it's possible. And again, I hope that's the case. I hope that there are more calm voices. But when the leader of the, the state Republican Party, uh, Voss, is basically saying we may have to do this, we may have to impeach her, it suggests that everybody's going to fall in line. And and so the the element of radicalization that we've seen in 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 the Republican Party is very much at play in Wisconsin, and it falls along those rural and urban divides. Um, and and I think the willingness to constantly change and amend the rules for your own political yeah. interest has been something that's been it's been happening for a long time in Wisconsin. When Tony Evers, the current governor, was elected before he took office, uh, the state legislature passed a whole bunch of rules taking power away from the governor. Right? I mean, so they, they've, there's a long history of doing this. So that's what makes me think that it's likely that they will try to impeach this the new justice. Now, what's interesting about that is if they are successful in impeaching her, the governor would just appoint a new justice. So. My guess is, as you mentioned in the intro, they are likely to begin the process and sort of silence her and then let it drag out for a while. So, hmm. I, mean, you know, I mean, I think there are a lot of different tactics that they will deploy, but they feel entirely justified in doing this. And you're, you're right. I mean, the idea of elected judges is problematic. And then you have the politicization of those campaigns. And I will say, like, I, I felt awkward about both of the candidates being so open about their political yeah. views because that's not what you think about with a judge. But with so much is at stake, I understood why both candidates did that. You know, they both made their political views clear so that they could win this election, right? And so it's 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 a trap and it's something that's been going on for for some time in Wisconsin as well. There's an interesting uh, there's an interesting kind of dilemma at the heart of this in, in which, I, you know, like I said earlier, elected judges are problematic because yeah. what you want in a judge is someone to, you know, uh, in an unbiased way, interpret and apply the law, not uh, not to have a political agenda. But there's something yeah. kind of I mean, in this instance, like. I don't know. There's something that's a little bit nice about the fact that it, 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 it we've talked about how, you know, people like to believe that the Supreme Court is not political or whatever, but it has become it has been political yes. for so long that in some ways they're at least kind of, you know, pulling the I, I don't know, they're pulling back the curtain and like acknowledging that this is a political institution. Yeah. So we're going to act we're going to talk about it. like we're not going to pretend that, uh, you know, it's it's uh, unknown how I will yeah. rule when I be, take the seat because it's, you know, people are voting 
voting for or they're appointing a democratic uh, justice because they're hoping that they will rule in certain ways. So at least it's, you know, out in the open, I guess. But um, but yeah, I mean, this is this is, you know, it's it's been well established that elected elected judges it does not work well. Right. I mean, this is people talk about like the laboratory of democracy, how there's 50 different states and they do different models and, and places where we elect judges and it becomes explicitly politicized. Um, it's it's problematic. It also feels like it reflects the way extent to which like another aspect that sort of mirrors American politics is the extent to which like it feels like we've kind of given up on like governing at the at the in the other sort of institutions. And we're just relying all on on having justices that will that will rule in a certain way, um, which isn't isn't great either. No, no. Right. When you think about like what's what is supposed to happen is that you have a, a ground, you know, swell of, of democracy, democracy and the legislatures pass things. And that's not what happens at the state level or the federal level. And so then then these fights over who's on the court become so central. And 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 you've seen this in the court, right? This we shouldn't think that the, the Supreme Court, Wisconsin Supreme Court has just become polarized and partisan. It's been happening for years. You sort of hinted this at, at the introduction, <laughs> but uh, 12 years ago, uh, there was, so Dave Prosser, who was a, a conservative Supreme Court justice, who I have met on a couple of occasions uh, years ago. Uh, he came to my grandfather's funeral. Like the, one of the nicest people I've ever met uh, was accused by a liberal judge of trying to choke her in, in, you know, in chambers. Right. It was just like this crazy story of of, you know, being so angry and, and using physical violence. And and I think some of what we're witnessing causes people who may not be radical to be radicalized. Right. And um, it's sort of shocking to see what's happened. And so I think that's why I think there's very little hope for any sort of uh, reasonableness in the Wisconsin political system. I think it is it is it's bare knuckle politics hmm. at this point and and Democrats are going to use every advantage and going to bring every single possible case they can to the court knowing that they're likely to get a political victory there and that's just where Wisconsin is and I I I hope it's not a preview of what our federal politics is going to be because I I think we're pretty darn close to that. It's really interesting. I mean politics is emotional. It is human beings like the idea of like the you know yeah. Not trying to say that it's appropriate to choke a fellow justice, but there's a long history of, you know, in the U.S., people, whatever, beating each other with canes or in other countries where there are brawls that break out. And and it makes sense that it's emotional and personal and all of that. But that's why we have institutions and rules in place. And so it, there's a, this interesting dilemma. In, and it feels like an important uh, an important question to kind of wrestle with in, in American politics today between, you know, when you when you're in politics, you want to win, right? You're playing to win because you believe in certain policies. But it feels like in Wisconsin, but in American politics in general, the idea of winning has become more important than the rule. So typically the way you deal with the emotion is we all agree on these rules in advance and I win, I'm going to try to win, but sometimes I lose and I accept that. And it feels like we're at a point now where winning is more important than the rules. And if I can adjust the rules to guarantee that I win, or if it looks like I'm going to lose and I can, you know, rig the the system. And that's, that's when it feels like, you know, all of the idea of, of loyal opposition and legitimate institution starts to, starts to crumble. And that's, that's not a good place to be. No, but, but what you just said is almost, it's like the perfect transition into our second topic, which sort of thinking about how do we handle this, right? And how do we handle it? How do we understand previous politicians and politics? Do you want to, want to transition to there? 
Yeah, I didn't. That wasn't even my intention. I just, I just naturally uh, uh, threw out that transition. You know, it just occurs beautifully through conversation, Bill. It's, it's the new TV. I'm telling you, the new TV is making you smarter. <laughs> so, all right. So let's let's do that. A really curious thing happened this at last week's Republican debate. At one point, the former Vice President Mike Pence, commenting on what what it meant to be an American, stated, "Quote: We're not looking for a new national identity. The American people are the most faith-filled, freedom-loving, idealistic." hardworking people the world has ever known. All right, that's a powerful quote, Phil. Uh, Vivek Ramaswamy quickly shot back, noting, quote, it's not morning in America. We live in a dark moment, and we have to confront the fact that we're in an internal sort of cold cultural civil war, unquote. All right, that's really interesting. Ramaswamy reference to morning in America, and specifically that it's not morning in America, was a reference to Ronald Reagan and his 1984 campaign theme. The Morning in America ad featured images of Americans as being calm, happy, and in an optimistic place. When Ramaswamy suggested it's not morning in America, it was an attack on Pence, suggesting that he was stuck in a different time and out of touch with the current state of America. Uh, That moment in the debate captured what could be a dramatic shift inside the Republican Party, one that, as Jonathan Swain of The New York Times put it this week, quote, rejects the sunny optimism of Reagan as the delusional mutterings of boomers. Uh, Swan notes that his anti-Reagan movement, this anti-Reagan movement, accelerated during the Trump era and is now being fed to the base in a pure form by Ramaswamy, uh, the so-called new right, which is often very young and very online. Uh, those on the new right are found asking the question, do you know what time it is? And, and when you start Googling this, you see this all over the Internet, suggesting that if you're still talking about Reagan, you don't understand the stakes and how fraught the situation has become. According to the new right, it is time to stop fetishizing civility, decency and the ideals of limited government. Instead, Republicans must be prepared to take more aggressive steps to stop. And as Trump put it in his 2016 inaugural address, this American carnage. Phil, last week during the podcast, you had a classic OK Boomer moment when you were trying to answer a phone that only you could hear. Now, despite that Boomer moment, I'm curious about what you think about this attempt on the new right to define what it means to be a conservative. I mean, I think this is fascinating. This kind of captures where, you know, we've we've had conversations over the years of doing this podcast about this sort of very notion that there are the, there are these divides that we're not, you know, two Americas. We're actually sort of multiple Americas, obviously. But um, this kind of captures that divide in the Republican Party perfectly between kind of, you know, what we would call traditional conservatives like Reagan era conservatives and the new kind of Trump era Republicans. Um, and it really does come down to I mean, I think both of those at the heart of it is again back to what we talked about last week which is how do you perceive the opposition right and and it it feels like the 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 sort of old school idea is you know the opposition is i, I don't know you, you think of whatever bob dole or whatever yeah. um and john you think McCain, of, you know, george right. bush john mccain the opposition is wrong but we're gonna like work to compromise we want to win elections because we think our ideas are better versus this new notion the trump notion the ramaswamy notion um that uh, the opposition is in some way evil right that they're like set on the destruction of America. And when you accept those that those stakes, when you think about it that way, then it does justify, you know, rev, rapid revolutionary change, right? If, if, if everything I know that makes America great is being lost, then we need to act now. And we're not going to act incrementally. We're not going to work with the other side. We're going to do what we have to do. And that's where, you know, Ramaswamy, we talked about him a, a while back. He, his idea 
ideas are, are, I mean, it's, it's very much born out of Trumpism, but it's all about like dramatically altering the power of the state government. I mean, about, of the state of, of, um, the federal government to, you know, sort of unilaterally do stuff, um, in, in order to achieve the goals that he wants. I mean, this is that, this is kind of the fruition of that sort of flirtation with authoritarianism, right? What we need is a strong leader. Um, and that's one of the things that comes up a lot when you look at kind of this, the new right, this, this kind of loss of faith in democracy and this belief that, you know, a strong leader can, can kind of fix this. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it also fits with what we know about, like to tie it back to political science. We've also talked in the past about, um, uh, the, these sort of eras in these kind of political coalitions that form and break apart. And it feels like we're at the point of where, uh, you know, the Reagan coalition, this idea that the group of people that Reagan put together that sort of began in the second half of the 20th century with the the shift in Southern Democrats or whatever, um, and the adding of the Christian, you know, the, the Christian right that has dominated national politics for 40 years is starting to like, you know, come apart at the seams, right? It's, you have conservative Christians who want to know why abortion hasn't, you know, been uh, addressed. You have the the sort of, you know, the kind of white nationalists who are wanting to, you know, deal with immigration and and whatnot. And and they can't necessarily play nice together anymore. And and Trump is kind of the classic sort of disjunctive president, right? Where he had this, you know, he had control of the president of the presidency. The Republican Party had the presidency, had Congress, and still couldn't get anything done because there were so many internal divisions. And it feels like it's out in the on the surface here um, uh, now. I mean, I suppose it shouldn't be surprising that somebody from 40 years ago is no longer speaking to the moment for a lot of people. But I, I don't know. I mean, what do, what do you take away from this kind of spat between the old school and the new school? Yeah, I think it's it's a really revealing shift, right? And and Ramaswamy is sort of an interesting delivery device, right? He's he's technically, I think, in third place. I mean, he's he's got low numbers, but maybe it's two or three percent. I mean, he's jumped ahead of Mike Pence. And, right. and I think he was, even though I did not like his performance, I think his performance is is drawing greater attention to him. I think people are talking about him. And so this this style is proving effective, even if there's not a lot of substance to it. I saw it was described, and you got to tell me if I'm saying this correct. There was somebody who described him, to use a, a Texas metaphor, that he was all hat and no cattle. Is that, is that yeah. right? Did I use that yeah. correctly? Yes, for sure. 100%. Okay. There wasn't a lot of substance there, but he was very entertaining. Yep. Um, and, and he reveled in sort of mocking the old establishment, right? So that that Mike Pence is stuck in a previous era and uh, just don't see the world as it really is. And it speaks to how much change the Republican Party thinks needs to happen right now. So Mike Pence is saying America is still a good country. We need some minor tweaks, but basically we're a good people. Uh, Ramaswamy is saying like this country is teetering on the edge, right? This is true American carnage and it's not incremental democratic shifts that are necessary. It is a full overhaul and that those who are coming for you, the enemy is within us and we have to sort of vanquish them, right? It's a sort of extreme Last week, we talked about this concept of the existential threat. Mm -hmm. Uh, And Ramaswamy is a well-spoken Harvard debater who puts a good face on that. But when you think about the substance of what he's saying, it really really is that this is not just about minor changes. This is about a revolutionary movement akin to January 6th and all those other things, which I think connects very well with the messaging that Trump has initially started. So it's, it's, it's dramatic. 
It's really fascinating. As you were talking, I was thinking about, you know, the semester's just starting and I am teaching my comparative politics class again, and I won't get to it for a few weeks. But one of the things we talk about when we talk about political movements in, in that class is the difference between sort of uh, conservative or liberal movements and reactionary or revolutionary yes. movements, yes. right? And, and the idea of conservative and liberal movements think that there needs to be some sort of change, either forward or backward or whatever, but that it should happen within the, the current institutions of government. And, and the reactionary and revolutionary ones say that no, the institutions, the, the, the sort of rules of the game are part of the problem and we need to kind of overturn the system. And, and that's the, that's really kind of what you're getting at, right? The, the pinces of the world who are saying, look, we, we do need to make change, but, but it can be done gradually. It can be done, you know, within the context and, and Ramaswamy's and Trump's who are saying, we've got to, we have to like, you know, we have to abandon the old system. We have to rebuild it. We have to do something different. And, um, that's, it's, it's, not, I mean, again, you know, some, sometimes reactionary and revolutionary movements are good, right? Like revolutionary sure. movements bring an end to authoritarian governments and whatnot. But in this context, when the thing they're revel, you know, revolting against is sort of a democratic form of, of government, it's, it's, uh, um, it's, it's really concerning. The other part that I see playing out in this, I know we need to move on. There's like so much to this as we yeah, dig into it, this little, <laughs> this little exchange. The other part is, is kind of the reactions in which like, I mean, it's clear that the the more kind of reactionary the the Trump sort of Ramaswamy movement is the more popular one within yes. the Republican Party right yep. now, right? Those are the candidates who are leading. The fact that this guy who nobody had heard of is now leading the former vice president says a lot. But what's also interesting is that a lot of the stuff he said did not get good reactions from the audience. So it, there's this also this kind of elite versus mass divide as well yeah. in that, you know, Pence, I think, is speaking the language of, you know, the Reaganite language is the language of many of the conservative elites and sort of decision makers. But Ramaswamy speaking like what the masses are feeling and that disjunct between, you know, how change should come between the elites and masses is really, I think, at the heart of a lot of the turmoil in the Republican Party right now. This is really fascinating. One more thing, and then yeah, we should move on. But but yeah, I mean, I think if you think about a specific example of that that we saw in the debate was this issue of, of how to approach Ukraine. Yeah. So Ramaswamy was very clear that the United States has no interest there. We've seen Ron DeSantis already make that argument that this is a territorial dispute. Uh, Donald Trump has hinted at this. So the, the new right is saying that, um, you know, Ukraine really isn't a central issue for the United States. And, you know, we probably shouldn't be there we, or shouldn't be contributing this. And then you saw all the old school Republicans, Nikki Haley, Mike Pence, uh, all these others coming and saying like, no, you know, th this this matters, like confronting aggressive powers, pushing back against Russia, defending this NATO alliance, all of these things, these historic conservative uh, positions uh, still matter, right? I mean, I think that that one is is so so important, mm -hmm. and it suggests that if Trump is elected president, I think I think the 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 energy on the new right is just getting out of Ukraine, and I think that would happen really quickly in terms of cutting support. It does feel like the you know, Reagan would be rolling over in his grave over some of the the you know the idea that America is is dark and 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 in a bad place, and that we should be less supportive of Russia's enemies. <laughs> it's like, yeah. it's, it's kind of hard to wrap your head around how far the party has come in 45 years for less than that. I mean, Reagan's been out of office. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. And less grounded in democracy because the yeah. dire times demand that we don't get caught up on constitutionalism and democracy, right? We're fighting for our, our very existence and anything is, is legitimate. Uh, yeah. All of that is, right. yeah, I, I think Reagan would have struggled with all of that. So yeah.
Yeah. Yep. All right. Well, let's let's transition to our next topic, and we're going to talk about free trade um, and looking at the state of free trade in the U.S. political system. And in many ways, this topic builds off our first couple of topics and explores the way in which public policy, in this case, free trade, appears to have become disconnected from any form of evidence-based analysis. Uh, instead, we are seeing a free trade. We are seeing free trade under attack from both Republican and Democrats. Trump led the GOP attack on free trade and levied heavy tariffs on China but also against our allies in the European Union, Britain, and Canada, among others. Despite the fact that study after study has shown that Trump's tariffs have hurt the U.S. economy. Trump has even doubled down and pledged that if he's reelected, he will impose a 10% universal tariff on all goods from all countries. Now, while Joe Biden has been critical of Trump's tariffs, in practice, he's maintained most of them and has been reluctant to pursue free trade agreements around the world. Uh, Biden doesn't use the same wording as Trump, referring to talk about protecting U.S. workers. But the net effect of his economic policies have not been all that different from Trump. Phil, this raises an interesting question and situation where both Democrats and Republicans, politicians and voters have developed a fear of free trade. This has the potential to have a major impact on the U.S. economy moving forward. What, what do you make of this development? I, I mean, there's this is also like the last one. There's so much here that we yeah. can sort of dig into to talk about. I mean, so I, I think the first thing that I, that comes to mind is what you were pointing out, that, you know, economists, not across the board, but pretty, you know, pretty it's close. pretty well yeah. accepted that, that free trade is, is good. And, and, you know, there's lots of ways that tariffs feel, this is kind of that classic, like tension between short-term and long-term kind of thinking. Like there, there is this kind of, uh, short-term thinking, which says, you know, we're losing jobs to China in, I think the article you sent used steel manufacturing as yeah. an example. Right. And so we need to protect steel manufacturing. So we'll put tariffs in place, but the, the end result, and we saw this during the Trump administration is that it, it raises the cost of steel to, you know, to, and, and that doesn't just affect the steel industry. It affects all sorts of other industries. So we've protected this one really small industry at the expense of uh -huh. this much bigger, like, you know, impact on the economy. But um, the the loss of jobs feels it's like easy to understand loss, losing steel jobs and how the tariff impacts that. It's harder to understand how like an intertwined economy is beneficial for everyone. And so it feels like this is a way where leaders aren't doing a great job of, of informing the, the public about how these things are beneficial. And I think, you know, that goes back to Trump, who I don't think cared, right? Trump wanted to win. And so he's going to say whatever he needs to win. But in the past, we had politicians who, you know, would also try to inform people and try to shape opinion in, in proper ways. And it goes back to this question of, you know, there, there's this debate in, in political science, or there has been in the past about like, to what extent do politicians shape like public attitudes, like mass attitudes and opinions on ideas? And to what extent do politicians follow mass idea. And there's a little bit of both, but it feels like we've, we've come to a place where the shift has like the pendulum has swung really far one way. And it feels like leaders, many of whom know better have given up trying to change people's minds and instead are just going along. And so there's this kind of mob mentality that trade is bad and China is bad and all of this other stuff. And politicians, rather than fighting back against that and trying to correct the record, find the easier path is just to campaign on it. And so you see even like Joe Biden, who's doing some of this, Joe Biden, who was outspoken about the Trump tariffs, but has continued to sort of keep many of them in place. And so, um, yeah, I mean, it, it is, it's it's frustrating, right? This is also yeah. the way in which like it feels like much of policy has become divorced from 
evidence, right? It's about feeling. And so, you know, when you get nationalism built into things, you're not necessarily making decisions based on what's best. You're making decisions based on, again, winning or whatever that means. And so, um, yeah, it's it's disheartening to see. Um, and, it, and it contributes to what we've talked about, this sort of growing tension between China and, and other things. I mean, what, what do you, is there a, is there some sort of easy solution to this? Or, I mean, is this, it's not that the, the sort of pushback against free trade is understandable, yeah. right? After we've seen what's happened for the last 20 or 30 years, but it doesn't feel like there's anybody who's trying to, uh, kind of harness free trade. It, it just feels like there's this revolt against free trade yeah. in, in some ways. Yeah, no, that's right. And and the American public, and, and let's say that understanding a global economy is complicated, right? It's messy. But to, to your point, the economists are are in you know agreement that that free trade in general benefits the United States and 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 uh, tariffs hurt the US economy right it, now how do we feel that different parts of the economy feel it differently and i think there's a broader conversation to be had about capitalism and globalization and how we distribute those resources right and i think that concern of, of a growing world of haves and have nots has led to a, a situation where the u.s economy i'm sorry u.s voters have turned against free trade democrats and republicans they're skeptical of it because it doesn't feel like it benefits them even though it does right and that's yeah. that's the hard thing and so you need politicians to speak truth to the public but they're not going to do that right i mean joe biden probably knows better he knows he knows enough that free trade is good for the u.s economy, but he also wants to be reelected. And so he's going to talk about the workers and he's going to talk about tariffs. And 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 he knows that if he pulls these Trump tariffs back, Trump is just going to hammer him time and time again, which is what Trump did to Hillary Clinton on the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Right. I mean, so this was a major campaign issue in 2016, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Uh, both Republicans and Democrats liked it. Everybody thought it was a good idea until Trump starts hammering and then eventually Hillary Clinton comes around and turns against it. So so the, the voters can can have a real big impact, even if if sort of they're not fully educated on the situation. So uh, it means that we're left in a suboptimal outcome where the U.S. economy is worse off. And this, this sort of ironic situation where the United States creates the current globalized system based on free trade and is now turning away from it. Right. And it's a there's a, there's an irony and, an, and I think an uncomfortable economic future for the U.S. because of that. Well, there's, I mean, there's something about the the kind of inherent tension in democracy in this as yeah. well, and that when people are voting, you're going to have leaders who sort of follow the votes, and that that's what you want, right? A democracy is supposed to represent um, the people, but it only works when you have sort of an informed and engaged population, right? And so we have, over the last however many, you know, 10, 20 years, become so kind of, uh, I don't know, disconnected from truth or from this idea of, like, we're going to pursue good policy yeah. to this kind of emotional thing that now leaders are, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't do any good for Joe Biden to, I, I shouldn't say that. I, I don't want to say, I think it would do good for Joe Biden to come out and argue for why free trade is sure. still good. Um, you need those voices in the room, but it, 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 it does feel like, uh, an uninformed public doesn't care that much or they don't have the, the, the attention span for it. And so, um, I don't know what that, how you sort of get back yeah. to that. Um, you know, it, it's partly the, the role of, of again, faith in the institutions and faith in leaders, all of which has yeah. been kind of undermined and, and, uh, yeah, it's, it's a messy place, messy place to be right now. It's a tough sell, right? If you're trying to sell the market, right? So if Joe Biden comes out or any politician, Democrat or Republican comes out and says the free market is a good thing, you're you're portrayed as an elitist, right? Who's who's in a rich, uh, you know, college educated, who's benefiting from a system that 
that suppresses the rest of us, right? It's, it's a difficult sell. Um, and I understand why politicians are turning away from it, even if it's not in the country's collective interest. It's much easier to pitch self-sufficiency. We should right. make things in America again, right? I mean, that argument, you hear that all the time and people say, that makes sense. Self-sufficiency. We should make things. I don't want to make things, Phil. I don't want to make t-shirts. I don't want to make my clothes, <laughs> right? There's value in having a globalized system where everybody specializes. And I would much rather specialize in technology and services than making things, right? But that's, again, that's a tough sell. People just want to hear this. We should bring the jobs back. And and again, I, I get it. Again, I get why both parties and politicians Politicians in both parties are are being more skeptical of free trade. Even in that in that uh, you know uh, kind of, uh, that what you were just saying, it becomes you can see where as a politician, like explaining how free yeah. trade is beneficial and how even though we're losing, like uh, you know another example, the article that you sent me brings up is is green energy. Even yeah. though we're losing the sort of green energy manufacturing jobs to China. It's create like the decreased cost is creating like a much bigger chunk of the American economy has to do with like installation and, and like yeah. not the manufacturing part, but other aspects of the green uh, economy. And so you can try to explain that, but it's much easier and simpler to say China's taking our jobs. Right. And yeah. so that it's part of it is about the, you know, the, the ease. And, I, you know, I think we had, I don't know, several probably six months ago, we talked about Democrats and the, the struggles they have with storytelling, right. With yeah, convincing right. people. And, and this feels like a classic example, right. It's where when you get into sort of an intellectualized conversation, that's less powerful than an emotional, you know, those, those people are bad. They're taking our jobs. And, and it's, you know, one of those is winning. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a, it's a tough battle to fight, I guess. Well, this, maybe this is a good point to transition to our, our final topic, which kind of takes a step back and assesses our ability to have reasonable and thoughtful politics in this era. Yeah. So building on Wisconsin Supreme Court and, and, and you know, uh, the, the Reagan era uh, shift and, and free train, all of this, uh, you know, this week. The Atlantic shared an article that actually was published last summer um, entitled Why the Past 10 Years of American Life Have Been Uniquely Stupid. And, and the article caught my attention. Um, I've put it up on the web page so it's easy to find. You don't have to go back into the Atlantic archives or whatever to find it. But in the article, Jonathan Haidt argues that social media is responsible for the dysfunction in American politics and society which isn't a new argument, but hate art uh, digs into the argument in some really fascinating ways. So for instance, hate argues that social media initially created positive impacts on society. You know, we think back to the early era of, of Facebook, it allowed people to interact with others, with family members and others at a distance. Um, and this wasn't unlike previous technological advances like the telephone or the printing press that helped ideas spread and helped bring people together. He even talks about, you know, in like the Arab spring, social media played really important important roles and kind of bringing different groups um, together. But that all changed around 2010 when Facebook introduced the like button and Twitter re released the retweet function. And this, uh, those two switches allowed social media algorithms to begin learning how to provide people with the content that was most likely to provoke interactions. And research has shown that, quote, Posts that trigger emotions, especially anger at outgroups, are the most likely to be shared. So 
all of a sudden with, with social media, you know, there's, there are the opportunities to, to like and share stuff and the kind of worst types of posts are the ones that are more likely to have that done. So the hate argues that this essentially acts as a reward punishment system that encourages people to post and share the most provocative of posts. And it has led to an outrage cycle and it has discouraged bipartisanship. It has elevated the most extreme voices. It's he says it silences good citizens, empowers extremists and leads to a system of immediate justice with no due process for anyone who steps out of line. You say something wrong and you get, mm -hmm. you know, lambasted on, on social media. As hate points out, quote, social scientists have identified at least three major forces that collectively bind together successful democracies, social capital or trust in your fellow citizens, strong institutions and shared stories. Social media, he says, has weakened all three. So hate points out that the extreme conservatives and liberals make up a relatively small portion of the population, like six, 7% each, but they also make up the majority of the political posts on social media. Now, hate does have some potential solutions like new election systems, nonpartisan redistricting, uh, regulation of social media. But in the end, he admits that it's likely going to get worse before it gets better. Uh, Bill, we spend so much time on this podcast talking about partisanship and the post-truth world we live in. Hate puts forth some fascinating, some really interesting explanations, not just that social media is bad, but kind of exactly why and what, where it kind of turned um, and how that, how this shift has occurred. And, and there's so many different directions we can go with this conversation about social media, about social divides, about institutions, yeah. about all sorts of stuff. Hey, where, where should we start? Well, you know, I, I like the he draws a sort of 2010, right? This is the the moment where where things go south. And it made me think as I was reading through this about you and I in grad school, right? So we were in grad school in the early 2000s. And at that time, people that were studying, so we were studying international politics and comparative politics, were thinking about globalization. They were thinking about technology, the internet in largely positive ways. So like this first wave of scholarship that came out that we were sort of grappling with was all of the ways in which technology was making our world better. And so you can think about whether it was, you know, the, the revolutions uh, occurring in Europe and Eastern Europe and then ultimately in Tunisia. But we saw, saw individuals using the tools of technology, the Internet and sharing information to weaken authoritarian systems. Right. And, and I remember thinking about this is a this is a tool that is going to devastate uh, authoritarian systems. It's going to it's going to spread democracy. And there was all this optimism. And then suddenly it shifted. And I think that's what's so brilliant about this article is it talks about why did that shift happen? And it, it, in some ways it's, it's technology, but it's also the human experience with technology, right? Mm -hmm. So we are, we are now constrained with another form of institution uh, and it is social media. And it's, it's a sort of very human reaction to, to, to want to find others like us. We find ways to divide. We find ways to hate, right? It allows all of these human emotions that are now tied to politics to play out. And so, so I just found, you know, it's maybe to start just, it was brilliant to start to think about this and to hone in on the like and the retweet, because yeah. think about like, I'm sure when those were first created, like what, how harmful could those be? But they yeah. are the beginning point for societal division and which has happened all over the world on a whole host of issues. And so one simple technological 
tool has really pulled us or, or maybe enabled us, allowed us to find these divisions. So, yeah, I just I, I just thought for that, that finding was was fantastic. What about you? What, what, what would you what are you pulling I, out from this? Yeah, no, I thought it was great. I mean, I, I agree with you. I, like there was this I, I think there's been this uh, like you were talking about this change in uh, belief about social media mm. from this very optimistic. It's democratizing the world's you know information is easier to spread. It's, you know, good um, yeah. in almost every way sort of approach in the early 2000s to this, you know, it, it's tearing our society apart, um, which is kind of the current wisdom. And I think the part of the fascinating thing is it's not social media. It's a specific type of social media that yes. social media, in fact, had had all of these positives. But the moment that we start introducing that kind of like and retweet mm. stuff um, and it becomes kind of algorithmic, it, it really represents a shift from social media as a unifying force to social media as a fracturing force, right? That it breaks us into all of these sort of subgroups. Um, and that it, what, what ends up happening is it amplifies that, you know, again, he talks about it in terms of like turning everyone into performers, right? It used to be that you posted a picture of your kid for your family to see. And now it's like this competition to get the most, you know, likes and, and retweets to become, you know, an influencer or whatever. And the best way to do that is to be sort of outrageous, right? Like you say, the, the most outrageous stuff you're going to get. I mean, that's what research shows. Uh, you know, that's what he talks about. The emotion and hate and anger are the things most likely, particularly at an out group, most likely to get likes and retweets and whatnot. And so what happens is what is a fairly small segment of society has become the, the, like the dominant voice. And he talks a lot about like, you know, again, most conservatives, most liberals don't necessarily line up with kind of these dominant, you know, online voices, but, but it doesn't, it doesn't matter because that, those are the only voices that we're being exposed to. So what has happened is it has pulled us in those two separate directions. It's, it's really fascinating. So, I mean, I think that aspect of it is, is really interesting that it, it's not just social media. It's the, this kind of particular form of it that's, that's, um, uh, introduced. And, and again, I think part of it is that, you know, it, this was a logical thing for Facebook and Twitter to do What was fascinating is he talks about how there was like concern at those companies about how this might happen. But ultimately, right, it's profit motive, right? You can get more users, more likes, more interactions. Yeah. That's good for Facebook. That's good for advertising and all of that. And so, I mean, it comes back around to regulation, right? I mean, this is the other part that I find interesting about this is, is recognizing that it's not just social media. It's this particular aspect of social media that's problematic. Yeah. And then, I, you know, I'm an institutions guy. I like thinking about like how, you know, through comparative politics and whatnot, like we can change the rules of the game and the changing those rules has outcomes. And so that's the other part that he gets, you know, one of the many things he gets yeah. into in this article are suggestions for how we can fix this. And, and I, they're kind of brilliant. I mean, they're really fascinating and interesting to think about. And, and that's the other part I, I kind of latched onto. Some of them are things that I've been kind of harping on for a long time, right? Like our election system, you know, there are lots of, we know as political scientists that there are election systems that are better at weeding out sort of extremist ideas. And, and for a long time, people thought our style of system was good at that. But we know now that, you know, these sort of multi member districts, like things like what Ireland does, what has taken what um, they're now using in uh, in Alaska is much better at weeding out extremists because 
um, uh, if you're having to pick up like a larger sort of chunk of the population in order to win more moderate voices, you know, in this ranked choice voting that, but, but we're unlikely to get those sorts of big changes in the short term. The other one he talks about is, uh, you know, nonpartisan redistricting, right? Like we shouldn't be electing judges. Right? So, so there are ways around it, but those are unlikely, but other stuff, which was as simple as like regulating, you know, he talks about like a bank has to do business. Like if a bank does business with you, there are rules in place to make it so that anonymous entities can't do business with a bank to combat money laundering. And you could very quickly cut out a lot of the trolls and bots and whatever by requiring, you know, Facebook and Twitter or X as it's now called, I guess, to actually verify people's identities. Um, That would be a simple thing that would do it. Or the other one was, you know, uh, not like if you, you could do away with the retweet or whatever. And, and basically what people would have to cut it, they would still do it. You could cut and paste, you know, share a post like, uh, uh, mechanically or whatever, but the odds of people doing that are just going to be far less, right? It kind of returns it. So these like some really big, some really small, but kind of thinking through, like if we identify that this is the problem, then we can move on to how do we address this problem? I totally agree that I, I like the the solutions that you highlighted there. I think the the other one that's sort of there is is, is the societal level. So he talks about social capital, and you and I have talked about social capital in the in the past. The idea: to what degree do people have networks of civic engagement? Are they connected with those around them? And you know, there there's thick and there's thin social capital. But but one thing we know is that as technology has taken a more central role in our life, our social capital has dropped. And Robert Putnam writes his famous book, Bowling Alone, right? Where he talks about that it used to be that our communities went out and bowled together you bowled in 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 leagues and now we bowl but we bowl alone right and i think this is really interesting right because technology has pulled us away from those social interactions those communal interactions um and and the the effect of that is we're searching for some sense of identity and when twitter I'm not going to call it X because it's just I, I don't know I can't do that but uh, and facebook come along and give us a way to do this through a like button, through a retweet, to sort of fill our our sense of identity and rage, not by fulfilling who we are, but who we're not, right? By othering mm-hmm. the other, it's really dangerous. And and I think that I don't think we fully appreciate the way in which technology has pulled us away from our local communities. I mean, is it anecdotal evidence? Like you and I have talked about, I played in a softball league this summer and I've gone golfing a little bit more. It, it's unbelievable how much of a sense of identity one can have from that. And I play with guys, I'm sure are Democrats and Republicans, but we don't talk about that because we're just yeah. happy to be get, together, right? And so that sense of, of identity is now being filled by social media. And, and you're right. They know how to give us a sense of purpose, but often by separating. I, I just, again, I, I really love the way that the author highlights this as a, a particularly pernicious tool that we now have. Yeah, that we're, I mean, that is like sort of tailor made for bringing out our worst yeah. you know, impulses, right? Like if you were right. going to design a system to drive us apart, it would be harder. It would be kind of hard to come up with something that that wasn't, you know, that was better at sort of getting at our worst impulses. Um, it's just, it, it just, you know, it, it's kind of tailor made for that. The other part that I think about is I, it feels like we're in, you know, when, when, when I think about, you know, all the optimism about social media when it first came along, um, I, you know, the, 
I think that potential is still very much there. And when I think about other sort of technological innovations, the printing press or the industrial revolution or whatever, they were also really disruptive, right? I mean, yeah, they caused right. all sorts of social, you know, uh, chaos and, and, and in the long run, they were, what ends up happening is you have regulation, right? That right. When they first come along, when the industrial revolution comes along, there's no regulation, there's no labor laws, there's no, you know, uh, EPA, there's none of that because it was not necessary. Everybody lived on farms before. And then suddenly there's this huge, you know, income taxes weren't necessary because there were, there were, you know, in the past it wasn't, it wasn't required, but industrialization comes along, urbanization comes along all of these economic inequalities and pollution and, and, you know, and, and so then there's this whole movement for regulation and what happens is you kind of rein in those worst excesses. And so it feels like we're at that point where we're seeing all the worst aspects of this, but we haven't gotten to the regulation part. And, and I'm hopeful that what that takes me to is that I'm hopeful that what we'll see in the rest of our lifetime is some move to do some of this stuff, stuff that's not that, uh, difficult, right? Like, you know, some, we're not talking about like ending free speech, right? Just yeah. doing away with the retweet button, um, and requiring people to physically retweet things, uh, doesn't limit speech, but it, it like takes away some of those perverse kind of, you know, incentives or structures. The problem is that this particular, uh, form of technology has so divided us that it's kind of hard to imagine even finding unit. Like in the past, it felt like there was some movement because there were enough people who were like, boy, this has gotten out of hand. And it feels like, um, we're maybe at a point where we can't even agree on that. And so it'll be interesting to see if we can actually unify enough to actually come to an agreement. Even if we hate <laughs> social media for different reasons, agree that, boy, there's something wrong here. And I'm, I, it feels like we're, I don't even know if we can do that in America right now. And the question is, can, would politicians be willing to do that because they have succeeded because of these tools, right? right. So if you think about the more radical, more radicalized elements of our, our politics right now, they have seized and learned how to use social media to their advantage, right? So, I mean, even the debates, if we circle all the way back to the debates, that wasn't, the debates weren't about a real engagement. It was about getting sound bites that they could then put, put on social media, right? A, a yep. three to five second clip where they say something provocative the crowd cheers, they move. I mean, so all of this, right? So you've got to be able to have the political system recognize the danger and the actors within that system who've benefited from it also say, nope, it's time. But you're, you're absolutely right. And societies do this, right? Inevitably, they come along and they say, we have to we have to come up with some rules and regulations. Sometimes it's generational. Sometimes it's a younger generation, which I think is way more tech savvy about misinformation, disinformation, all of that. So I do have some hope that this younger generation will come along and say, this this just makes sense. We're going to have to have some sensible conversations about how we protect our democracy and, and limit uh, social media. It is really interesting. Like when you look at the makeup of who's in power politically right now, it tends to be older, I mean, a disproportionately older, uh, generation, um, who I think don't really under oftentimes don't really understand the, 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 uh, social media aspect that they're dealing with. And then the younger people, and when you think about the younger people, they're exactly, you're exactly right. They're people who have risen to the heights of politics because of their ability to do this, whether that's, you know, Trump and Marjorie Taylor green, or whether it's AOC, right. It's like people who have been able to use the, you know, social media for those purposes that have, have led to their, 
their, you know, viral status or whatever. And so, uh, it doesn't seem like there's really anybody who necessarily wants to regulate or benefits from it. But I do think you're right. The, the, it feels like, you know, our kids generation and like our current college students have a, like a, a very different relationship with social media because they realize the, the sort of potential stupidity of it all, um, in ways that maybe will lead to, uh, reform as unless we, you know, burn everything down before they have a chance to do that. <laughs> this is right. No, absolutely. I mean, and, and then there is hope. And, and again, and what's so really valuable about this article is that it helps us understand the stupidity of our politics. Like some of the things yeah. that we've talked about today are a byproduct of this technology and the, the institutions that have been created by it where that's that's what gives us, you know, the the debacle that is Wisconsin politics right now. That's what gives yep. us these uh, false debates about free trade and and all of that. And it's what empowers uh, Ramaswamy to to pursue this more radical agenda because he knows it's going to be successful online. So yeah, it uh, yeah. it it really is helpful. Sort of understanding the dumpster fire that we've witnessed is is a lot of it is because social media has allowed us uh, to to find that worst part of humanity. Yep. Yeah. I thought it was great. The examples that it talks about this, the, the, rather than focusing on policy, rather than talking about free trade and whether we're, we're focused on, you know, he uses examples of, you know, AOC's dress or of, you yeah. know, somebody makes a gaffe, uh, somebody falls down. Those are the things that, that hit the, that, that get the likes and retweets and whatever, as opposed to, you know, in-depth, uh, intellectual discussion of, of stuff. So, oh. um, yeah. This has been fascinating, Phil. We've been all over the place in terms. I mean, there's yeah. a, there's a theme running through all of this, but this has been really interesting to kind of to look at this problem from a variety of different perspectives. So I'm, I'm yep. guessing the listeners are going to want to check out this article and some of the other ones. You want to remind them how they can go find that. Yeah, so you can go to thepoliticslab.com and you can find uh, an article on each of these. So, uh, you know, we've got an article on on the free trade stuff, on the, the Pence uh, Ramaswamy stuff, um, on the Wisconsin Supreme Court. But but also, uh, you know, that, that article from from Hate in the in the uh, Atlantic is really interesting. It's a longer article, but really gets into, you know, more stuff than we had time to even cover today. Uh, but uh, it's, there's a, an easy link to that on the web page as well. So go to thepoliticslab.com, click on this, wing, this week's um, episode page, and you, you've got all the links right there at your fingertips. And for the record, neither Phil or I are boomers, right? We're 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 younger than that, so yeah. Experts. I'm Gen Z, right? Yes, that's right. <laughs> All right, Phil. I'll see you next week. Bye, Bill. Bye, Phil. <laughs>